This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel, your Sherpa guide to the mountaintop of conversations on the creative process. Today, we visit with a multi-talented artist, illustrator, and toy designer that is revered in the rock and hip-hop gig poster scene for his work with Nine Inch Nails, Run the Jewels, Foo Fighters, Queens of the Stone Age, and so many other legendary bands. But he is much more than that. He's a philosopher, a provocateur, and a fan of Disneyland. Stick around for my guest, Jermaine Rogers, a visual storyteller on the top shelf of lowbrow art. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. Hello. How you feeling today? Did I take you away from a big piece of art that you're on deadline for? You know what? I live that way perpetually. So yeah, nothing new. Like anything that I do other than art is taking me away from the art. It's a pleasure to be. I look at your, I don't, can't even call it a portfolio because there's a universe of material on Instagram and just so many years of amazing imagery. You actually help create the image for the poster, but you also begin to create the image of the band in your expression. So tell me how you do that when you first listen to music or hook up with a band. How do you go about that? It's it's variable. You know, I mean, sometimes it's a very it's very literal in the sense that, oh, OK, um, I'm doing a poster for this band. They've asked me to do work. And the theme of their album is this and their latest record. And it resonates with me on this level. Or, or one of my favorite songs that they do is talking about this. And I, I've always thought about ways to illustrate after doing this for so many years, like I sort of exist in a filter mode. I'm always turned on. Like everything that I see, I'm like, how could I chew that, swallow it and regurgitate it in my own way? <laughs> so it's one of those deals to where like you you think like that all the time. So whenever I listen to a band's music, even when I'm not working with them, I think about imagery and I really do. In many ways, I kind of think I'm sort of like an armchair film guy, too. It's like always been a dream. I was I, I tell people all the time, one of these days I want to learn how to work the machinery and do it because I see things very cinematically. So sometimes it's very literal that way. And then other times, you know, you know, when I'm working with certain bands who give me sort of the freedom aesthetically to do whatever I want to do, sometimes the most powerful images are the ones that are very abstract. I mean, a poster for a band like Queens of the Stone Age, and I decide to do an issue that addresses fear of the future or... Mm hopelessness or some weird human emotion. And in a way, that's very rock and roll because it comes out of left field, but it also uh, it grabs the viewer. Like, I know what you were expecting to see. And I'm not giving you that. I'm giving you this. And suddenly then the viewer is like standing at the show, 
like looking at the merch booth, seeing the poster for the nice show. And they're like, oh, my goodness. Well, it seems by piece. it seems to me like that creates tension for the viewer, right? right? There's this great urgency or alertness to looking at it and exploring what your image is. In, in many ways, I don't want to label you, but I think you're a translator. There's a certain kind of influence and, and amplifying that you do that turns the song up because it's only audio until you give them that image to hang on it, and which is, I'm sure, why you're, so many of your bands are return business partners is that you're growing together in many ways. Yeah. We, um, you know, the art moves along with the music and there's certain amount of creative trust. Like I know where the line is Mm. and I know how to walk right on top of it, you know, and, and they say, okay, that's fine. And it, because you used a, a great word urgency in an ideal scenario. That's what I believe art should be. And I'll say that's what I believe because there's no, right or wrong in art. Everything that I say could be wrong, right? But that urgency of artwork that pushes you to to have an opinion, well, no matter how trivial it is. Right. I think that I think that you provoke dialogue. And because you use not just visuals, but you use you have words that are bringing thoughts out and Oftentimes, because it's a little, I call it poetic because you're using some universal themes as you talk about fear and so forth, but you're leaving some level of interpretation for them to say, wait, is this rabbit scared of me or did I scare (laughs) this rabbit to where the knife behind his back is him protecting himself? So much going on here. Like it's so deep. And yet you're using animated characters and tricky ways in to comfort me at the same time as, you know, there's a little bit of a lure into the back alley. That's yeah. You really, I can tell you're, you, you're an artist yourself because you see that. I I once, I once said that it's I consider the art to be almost like back in the, uh, in the old days, they had a thing called a smallpox blanket. You know, it was a, a dirty, a dirty trick that some of the, the people who came over to this country pulled on, on native Americans. They brought these blankets over to trade, but what they had done over on the other side of the ocean, they had contaminated these blankets with smallpox. Uh. Smallpox didn't exist over here in uh, in North America or you know in the Americas period. So they get the blankets over here and they like, oh yeah, here are these beautiful blankets. Here you take them; they're a gift. And meanwhile, they're infecting the people. The people don't know uh. it. To take the analogy, I feel that. Not in a negative way, but in a similar way, contracted art can be the same way. Oh, yeah, this is a great concert poster for Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, take this. And meanwhile, I've infected it with some social stuff, you know. (laughs) And and so you get that thing home and you look at it and sometimes, you know, it's hanging on your wall. And I I like how you you just made yourself the guy who's giving people smallpox. I'm the, <laughs> that makes me well that's what I I'm understand saying. the analogy but you made yourself exactly. the bad guy in that story exactly yeah. I mean it's like on the low that's one of the things that attracts a lot of artists to being artists because it's a position of of control in a very sublime way it's like so you, know, you lead me to something that you hinted at a little earlier and and I want to know what your point of view is on the importance of freedom of expression in creating your work it's something that you gain more of the longer you work, the people holding the, the, the purse strings, 
you know, you have to build a trust. Little by little, you get more of it. And to have that freedom to just say whatever you want to say, because I believe that that's really like in a purest sense, the artist in whatever form that he or she may be operating, you know, visual artist, filmmaker, writer, musician, whatever. Ideally, we are the conscience of humanity. We are the finger that's either excusing or accusing. And we have to be able to do that in an environment that is not going to penalize us for it, uh, which is getting really harder nowadays because with social media, everyone has a voice and a lot of people equate that with, well, I have a voice, so I have uh, some sort of social authority. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very important for me as an artist to be able to say exactly what I'm feeling because it's a very almost religious thing to me. It's sacred. Like I'm, I am an artist and I am, if, if there's anybody in society who is going to tell it exactly the way it is, it's got to be me because everybody else around me has so many ulterior motives and attachments and people, you know, they can't say this because they might get fired. They can't say this because the family won't like it. They can't say this because they're in some religion. I have to be one of those people who can just say it. Well, I think honesty is a, an amazing power, especially if you have the ability to express it in a way that can be shared in, with a community as opposed to being kept to yourself. There are lots of people with ideas and stuff that have a, they're afraid if they say it, so, as you said, they'll be penalized or you'll be knocked off your pedestal. And I think the, the more confusing thing is the idea of freedom of speech. It's not freedom to libel. It's not freedom. You know what I mean? It's not freedom to ruin another human being with some, you know, untruthful statement. And yet people think, no, I can say and do anything I want. Uh, and I think to your credit as an artist is that you are hailing out your truth. Your point of view is, I don't know, it's, a, it's really a powerful thing. And, and I guess for, a, for an artist, illustrator, painter, designer, in many ways, you have the safety of your studio where if you're not for hire, there's no, there's no constraints. There's no boundaries. There's no barbed wire fence. Do how you want. Now, interestingly, at this time, my line of work is much more theater and drama, which means it's being staged and performance and all of that the venue, the audience, it's all been taken away. So my mm. producer, Amanda, shared in a really interesting story with me today about in France, a couple of actors who they had nowhere to work. They made a deal with a storefront that had been closed down and they had a, a showcase window and they did an hour performance where they're inside where the mannequins would be. They put on a performance through the glass that drew this huge crowd and they were doing everything. They were in a bathtub. They were brushing their teeth. They were sort of living the scene out for an hour. And you could see how hungry the audience was to gather and to see story because they've been going a year plus without any kind of way to take their art and express it. So in many ways, I admire the, the visual artist 
for being able to always work with an immediate response. If they feel like it, they just pick up that, that whatever medium you're working in. In your line of work, I'm just curious, like, so you see something or you feel something and you want to make a statement. There's so many like hurdles you have to go through for like, you've got to like, it's got to pass this and this, and this guy has to say, okay. And this guy has to say, okay. But do you ever find that that process dilutes the original idea? It, it does. And that's why as a playwright, you can pull it off a little longer because nobody care. Nobody's funding the playwright essentially. Right. And I, and I say that somewhat lightly, but networks and studios and corporations are problematic. But artists, the less you pay somebody, the more, the more they have time to themselves in terms of the beginning of it. And I always say to people, the first draft belongs to you. So make it bulletproof. Say what you want to say. Don't let anything get in your way, right? If you're already hired to write a screenplay and they say, can you interpret this book? And then they read every page and they edit everything. It's, it is a problem. It's for many reasons. The auteur for a director, for a writer, for anybody, if they're working in sort of an auteur way, they can get a lot more done. They can keep the point of view fresh. So the place that I use it, it takes a long time to get a piece of work to the stage or to TV, to film. But as a stand-up comedian, what I say tonight is up to me. And what, yeah. I, I, you know, you're, you're suddenly in a boxing match with the audience. You have to decide, am I going to throw this punch? Are they going to punch back? You know, and I'm I'm a pretty <laughs> squeaky comic. I would say something I wrote the other day that is um, it's sort of a very interesting joke was that I was saying to the audience, I'm feeling a little confessional and I'm going to share with you. I don't know if I should tell you this, but I've had this thing for a married woman for a, a long time and I <laughs> did everything I could to get her to sleep with me. And she said, no, no, no. And then eventually she divorced me. So what's interesting is that the audience hates me at the beginning of that story. They're like, what a cad. He's ruining somebody's marriage. This guy's tacky and creepy and whatever. And at the end, they're like, oh, this poor bastard. There's pity. (laughs) So there's just, it's a very small tale, but it's, there's a journey in it. Yeah. It says something too about that. Like if you if you're masterful at that, just the control aspect that I think appeals to every because every artist is an egotist, you know, like every every artist is trying to imagine reality that doesn't exist. Like every artist is like, hey, you know, I look around this great, amazing universe. You know, I I can't remember the writer. That was a writer who I think it might have been Oscar Wilde who who was talking about somebody. And he says uh, he's the kind of person that looks up at the stars and says uh, they'd be nicer if they were arranged differently, (laughs) you know, and that's every artist, you know, every artist looks around the great expanse of like existence and goes like, well, this doesn't exist. That sucks. You know? And so like we, we, this, with this ego, we have to feed and that ability to control people. It is. And it's funny. It's the same ego you see in a regular job, right? Right. When the plumber comes to your house, the first thing they always say is, the last guy didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> That's right. right? <laughs> they, he, they, they go under your house and they move pipes around and they're like, I should have, if you should have gotten me five years ago. Right. 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 Exactly. Uh, and they're a hero, but only for that chapter until the next plumber comes who says those last idiots, you know what I mean? We're all just moving down the line in that story. 
it, you know? it, it like I think if more artists, because I believe a lot of artists, even some that are technically like masters at their craft, a lot of artists could do better at just raw critical thinking, like sitting down and thinking about what they're doing. Because I think if a lot of artists really understood that, then you realize like, man, if I can give my artwork power, if everybody, if, if like this ego thing is present in everyone, I can give my artwork power if I somehow give it the ability to appeal to ego. You know, as far as like the art that I make, I realize that the pieces that last are the pieces that allow the viewer to own them. And I think some artists look at it backwards. They think, oh, well, this piece is going to be great because I'm going to put so much detail in it. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And then you look back at the history of like modern visual art and you look at the pieces that are the pillars of what we believe art to be. And just think about them. Starry Night, Edvard Munch's The Scream, Aegon Chalet's Self-Portraits, Mondrian's Lines, Pollock's Splatters, uh, mm-hmm. Warhol's Big Campbell Soup. They're all very simple, iconic ideas. And with the ability for the viewer to go like, you know, that, like it doesn't bowl you over with like this just technical intricacy. It's just it's a solid idea. And you think to yourself like, man, this can be had. I can own this somewhere. And I think that's the art that lasts. What I'm hearing, and I kind of believe too, is that ego is actually a big obstacle to artists because they want to be remembered. They're going to remember me for this piece. (laughs) Right, exactly. Right. Which in the end, we remember artists for many other things. Certainly, their overall work is a part of it, but Van Gogh was this tortured guy. We didn't see his work, and the money wasn't made till long after he was dead. It was, and his brother Theo was the one that did the work to get him to sell it, or he wouldn't have sold anything. That's right. Yeah. So I think it's the journey and the process and the moment of creation where we're evolving. Mm-hmm. That's where the artist is growing the most. It's not in the how much it sells for. In the end, that doesn't. It may grow the estate, but it doesn't grow the artists themselves. And and I'm sure there are moments, there are probably pieces of your art where you can go, this is sort of where it changed for me. Mm -hmm. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about some of those kind of touchstones, places where you, where it went from a gig poster to toy designer? Well, I mean, the first coming up, you know, I was lucky to kind of be in the right place at the right time. So just as I was getting out of high school, rock music was changing. And so I was going to all these little shows at places like Emo's and the Vatican and Numbers down here in Texas, Houston and Austin. You know, it's seeing these little bands, you know, here's this, this little band from Seattle called Soundgarden. Let's go check them out. Or here's this little <laughs> band from LA called Jane's Addiction. Let's go see them. Um, I remember seeing Nirvana at the Vatican and you're doing artwork and, and, and you know, you, you're trying to be a part of a scene. Really. Let me ask you a question. At that time, were you trading artwork for tickets? Exactly. Like were you? Yeah. I mean, okay. like I'd get a call. That was a guy, for instance, I used to do posters for this place in Houston called numbers. Okay. And the guy who ran it was this guy named Bruce. He booked it 
and he also owned a record store called Record Rack. So I would go in there and he would like basically give me 50 bucks to design a flyer and a couple tickets to the show. And that, that was no illusion. I had a day job. That was no illusion that this would ever be because that had been beaten out of me by every art teacher that I come across. You can't that kind of work. You need to get into. I always laugh about it. These art teachers were like, oh, you can draw. You need to get into drafting. Like what? Drafting. They, you know, they never saw what I wanted to do as a viable way of making a living. So I was just doing this to be part of the scene. I was friends with people in the bands and whatever. So let me stop you for a second. What job were you doing at the time? Was it sort of a sales job or something else or? Man, it's crazy. I'll tell you what I was doing. I worked in a lot of different places. So, you know, I, I laid carpet for a while. I, I worked at a I, I worked at the uh, River Oaks, historic River Oaks Theater here in Houston for a while, because, I, like I said, movies and writing has always mm-hmm. been sort of my undercard that I sort of secretly. So, yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll work there. You know, and I used to love that place because I would just sit in the auditorium that had been there since the 30s or 40s. I was that dude. I'd sit there and go like the thousands of people who have dreamed in this space. I was that dude. But I like those dudes, by the way. <laughs> right. That's on. my kind of dude. <laughs> <laughs> right on. But then I looked into a job at the Houston Museum of Natural Science and through ambling into it. And because I knew people and whatever, I got a job in the astronomy department and I was doing planetarium. I mean, I had a full time salaried benefits. Like I just stumbled into it, man, just with the little stuff. I didn't have a degree in anything astro or physics or anything like that. And and it was a pretty cool little gig for a dude in yeah. his early 20s. I'm like, OK. And it was, it was a lifetime gig. It was a job in academia. You know, if I just do the job right, I never get fired. You know, it's, it's interesting because you're a paid dreamer in, in a planetarium. Exactly. And I used to do that quite a bit doing these things. And then, uh, you know, as the music is getting bigger, the art is sort of just going along with it. And I'm getting these jobs and doing more stuff. And I, I believe a lot of artists, the first few years of their career, they're emulating their idols. So I was doing a lot of drawing that looked a lot like Raymond Pettibone, who I just, you know, I loved Raymond Pettibone. I grew up here in Texas. So that was an artist named Frank Kozik, who was a little bit of a mentor to me. At the time, I was just trying to just be a part of something. Did that for a few years, whatever. Got to a point where I left the day job and went out on my own. But it was a poster that I did in the late 90s mid to late nineties for a band called tool. And that was the poster where I could sense things were changing. Now this all, it was a perfect storm. Was that the devil image of the the devil devil? with the boxing gloves on? Yeah, it was. And it was basically, now this is an example of what we talked about earlier. That record that they were touring on was called enema. And, and the title song of that record talks about, Hey, there's all this talk about Armageddon and judgment day. I really hope all that's true because this place is shit. This place is like, it needs to be gotten rid of. Mm -hmm. And so I did that poster of just the devil and the grim reaper behind him. And that's sort of like in boxing gear, they like training. And the caption at the top says something about judgment day training, preparing for judgment day training, something like that. I recall it. uh, It was a perfect storm because my art, I was starting to find my own style. You know how that happens at some point. You know, you're, you're imitating and 
doing things that you think you're supposed to do artistically for a while. And then at one moment, you find yourself. Mm. You just go, oh, shit, this is what I look like. So that happened along with the fact of the poster scene starting to through the Internet, because I was, you know, 96, 97. Everything is this perfect storm and tool is just putting out this amazing record. All of this stuff is happening. And then I start getting emails from like cats in Germany, like, oh, I love your work. And and I'm like, okay. And this is now, again, just for context of the audience, this is sort of pre- Facebook. This is when the gig poster scene is starting to ramp up. And are you and Frank Kosick and like you got this is a hangout, but it's is it before MySpace even? Oh, yeah, it's this. This is before uh, any social media. And yet the poster scene, uh, people were coming onto this thing and up while you're working, you're creating chats where you can talk to your idols, uh, anybody who's Right. I mean, the the simplest yeah. artist to the m- most masterful is there chatting it up. I will say this. I'm glad you bring that up because that was a website called gigposters.com. And it was part repository. Like so you could go on there and just see you, you were invited if you were an artist that did a real poster to upload all of them. So a person could just like literally type in a name and see everything they did. Or they could type in a band name and see every poster that's been created for that band. It was also a forum board. So that was a forum part right. of it. And all of these are, yeah. So you'd be sitting there and like from 99 to about 2002 or 2003, every artist I knew you'd wake up in the morning, you'd log on to gig posters and then you'd work and gig posters would be on in the background. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you'd see these magical moments where like some new person would come in and upload that work. And everybody would be like, oh my God, you're amazing. And like a month later, that person is working for a band. It's a shame that site is gone now. That would have been amazing to see. What a game changer that was for people who all are in their own studio, working alone, don't know what everybody's going through, the same pains and sense of fraud and sense of success. And am I ever going to make it? And how do I get paid for this? To really finding your your tribe, not to be cliche, but you know, no, I, th- I think you're exactly hitting it because like, and I think the internet period, because, you know, artistic scenes used to gestate and evolve in geographical areas, geographical settings. So like if you wanted to be an artist in the late 1800s and really be taken seriously, you had to go to Paris. You know, if you wanted to be in a, a rock and roll band, you know, and you want to do the whole hippie kind of psychedelic stuff in the sixties. Like you got to go to California, man. You just got to. And specifically San Francisco at that time. So like all of a sudden here comes the internet. And now there are these artistic scenes that are evolving in cyberspace. So there's no geographical place to go. Like gigposters.com was that way. The gig poster scene and everything that's come out of it. Street art prints, the movie posters that people like Mondo and those companies, all of those, the the guys who started Mondo, they were rock poster people. They used to be on gigposters.com. Everything came out of that. I think that's a really big thing that people don't talk about a lot is the fact that art scenes now evolve in the metaverse. 
they don't evolve. Right. But didn't it grow from that to becoming a cultural hub for convening somewhere where eventually after several years, people go, Hey, we should have a conference. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Gig posters. (laughs) What ended up happening was um, right around 2000, 2001, there was some talking going on. And I remember I tried to organize a, a poster show in Austin and I actually called up the guy who used to run the original emos and said, Hey, is it possible it could, could we meet there and have like an Austin, a poster show and people could, and he's like, yeah, let's do it. And it fell apart, man. We start talking more and more and the idea of a big conference of sorts happens and the idea of flat stock happened. Yeah. Flat stock was this thing. And the very first flat stock was held in, um, San Francisco at yeah. this place called cell space. There were only like 25, 30 artists there. And it was attended okay. Not a lot of people showed up, but it was one of those kind of things. Sometimes when I think about flat stock, I think about what it, that the what is it with the Armory show in 1901 or something. That it was one of these things that happened, and like everybody who was there is like, "Oh, I was there," right? And everybody right. who and half of the people was, who say they were there were not there, right? Uh, but a lot of people think back and go, "Oh man, if I could have been there." Because it was now, I know somebody that was there. Who was that? Because well, when I moved to Austin, Mm -hmm. my next door neighbor Jeff later became the flat stock guy in Austin. Jeff Pivato, yes, Jeff Pivato, and he told me the other day when I said, "Hey, I'm going to talk to Jermaine Rogers." He's oh, he said I was just collecting posters. I was an artist. I was collecting posters, and I found this guy's work. I guess he was working for Apple at the time. He said that he came to Houston. And traded a computer for a bunch of posters you had because he thought you only had one for sale. You were a guy just selling a poster. And when he got there, you're like, oh, no, I have, I make all these kinds of posters. So I thought that was just great serendipity that I was going to be talking to you. Um, And, you know, I was always fascinated next door. I'm like, what's that guy doing over there? Like (laughs) he's got a silk screener and he's doing his own stuff and, you know. Uh, it's it really is interesting because the democratization of distribution where you don't need a printer, mm-hmm. you don't need a record label, like it's kind of taken the power away from those that a band can put out their own album and sell it from their website or that a filmmaker can just upload onto YouTube if they have no other outlet. And it is a bit of a uh, the Wild West for discovery. And, and some people don't like it. Some people don't like that they call somebody a YouTube star or a something. But the fact is, is they still got to put out work that appeals to a certain amount of people. Right. Right. It has to have some value, even if we don't get it. That's right. Somebody gets it. Right. No, I say that all the time, man. And uh, it's a beautiful guys. You mentioned Van Gogh. A guy like Van Gogh would have given his left give him his other ears right ear. Right, he, right. he would have given that to be in this space to where because all any artist wants people to show my stuff to you don't even have to prepare them you don't they don't even have to be uh prone to buy the kind of stuff that i do just give me the people because i trust my work and so it's one of those deals where um i tell artists all the time like if you can find your people and you have the best shot at it in the history, I mean, like the last time it was as easy was when there were like only like a hundred people in the community or something. 
But you literally can go online and post your work. And if you can find your people and are there people who think exactly like you? Goddamn right. There are people who think exactly like you. That's that's why love songs work. Right. right? That's why pain, you know, those sort of lament songs work is people go, I feel that I feel the suffering. I personally, when I'm talking to artists, I tell them, man, nobody really cares how good you are. They don't. Like, I think a lot of artists mistakenly believe that it's about talent and it's really not. I think it's about, do you have an idea that can resonate with someone else and make them feel strong? That's why people go to Disneyland, man. I'm, I'm a big Disneyland guy. I love Disneyland. <laughs> all right. That's why people go to Disneyland. And when I'm in Disneyland, dude, money is no object, man. My wallet is open, <laughs> you know, and it's because it makes me feel strong. It makes me feel right. good. I feel strong. So like if you can make people feel that way, man, the money will come, dude. It'll well, that, that's what's so amazing about really good advertising. Right. It isn't about that they're selling you. It's that you want to buy. There's a big difference yeah. in that context. And part of it is, what's our emotion? What are we feeling? Is Nike making me feel like I can do it? Right? right. It's it's a very artful and uh, evil handshake. No, it is. Um, you uh, like because, And that's why Bill Hicks would often say that like those guys were evil because they were cheating. They were doing that without really making artwork. They were just right. like, you know what I mean? They were like using the artist's toolbox, but they really weren't artists. Right. And they were just trying to manipulate your feelings. Whereas guys like us, yeah. Well, we, thank you for, thank you for including me in that. I like oh, that. Definitely, guys man. like us. Yeah, man, I've, I've, I've seen your work. Come on. <laughs> you know, we, we have to actually do the dirty work of creating actual content that 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 messes with people's feelings or sure. whatever you know but while they they just sort of use like little shortcut tricks and they do it well they do it really well i mean it is it's absolutely one of those uh wizard of oz never mind that man behind the curtain that's cashing all the checks thing right boy you struck a nerve on a lot of different areas but one is about the ideas right have ideas of value uh Seeing so much of your work, I think, man, this guy is just boundless amount of ideas. You're a storyteller and you're telling them in one panels and multi things. You're it's on the on a skateboard. It's it's everywhere. How do you contain that? How do you harness it when you're having many ideas at once or over time? How do you prioritize your time to complete all the things you're thinking about? You give me far too much credit. Oh, OK, because I have trouble with that. Like really? I have so many ideas, man. There are times when I get so depressed mm. because I have so many ideas. And I'm not saying that in some you know grandiose way. I mean, I just have all these different ideas. I'm not going to say that they're all fully fleshed out or fully thought through to, to completion, but I have all these ideas and I've realized that like I'm going to die with some of these ideas. Ah, I don't have enough time. I don't sometimes have the experience. Like one of the most depressing things is to have an idea and not understand the tools ah. to make it happen. I've got idea, for instance, for film. I've got full ideas for films 
in my mind, not just the climax parts, the boring parts. I, I know who the stars would be. I know who the, the co-stars, I know who the bit players are. I know what music plays during the end credits. Do you know what tool you need? What's that? A notebook. <laughs> I got stacks of those. Okay. Okay. No, but I'm saying whenever, whenever anybody says this is all happening in my head, right. I think, well, that's never going anywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. In your head, and you, you're blessed with a cinematic point of view of the world. So if you're able to start putting it somewhere on paper or in a structure, and then I would say that there's a saying that I heard a long time ago, the man with two watches never really knows what time it is, mm. which means an idea at a time. And you know how to do this when it comes to your artwork. You're working on a poster. It's on a deadline. You've finished that piece of work. But with these stories, maybe with the film ideas, you're letting that play. It's projecting somewhere. Maybe they're all playing at once, right? This may be just a matter of, of mind clutter, but how do you start to create a system for yourself where that can become that film? And then the next idea can be the next film, right? And I think you have done it in other parts of your work. You made a translation to this toy design and vinyl work. No, it, it happens, yeah. I, from time to time, I've art directed other things for certain entities. Yeah, and I can just look at a piece and go like, no. You know, move this over here and then they'll move it and go, oh, and it's just, right. yeah, it's one of those things. Yeah. That I think is what you just saw me do in 10 minutes. It took me 20 years to learn how to do that. You right. know, you know, slowly learning and putting things in order. And, and again, the, the major part of the, I think of the ideas that I won't mm. get to make. I go, oh, how many, you know, walk through a library, how many stories were never made? How many stories were never told? So it's that big kind of weird whatever. But yeah. Well, the, there is a saying that I heard that when a, when a man dies, the library is burned to the ground. I mean, you think about that and it's a very sad thing. And that's why it's so important, I think, to say your thing, whatever it is. And not for any quote unquote, we talk about legacy. I'm about <laughs> to sound like a 1970s <laughs> children's uh, (laughs) (laughs) educational, you know, but like there's only one you, the universe, you are, you know, Carl Sagan said that, that we are all the universe in a format so that it can observe itself. You know, that that's what we are. It's the universe has devised a way to produce these little pieces of itself that can observe everything. You're the only one of you that has ever been and will ever be here. Like I said, Fred Rogers mm. type stuff. The casual thing that you throw off may be the thing that moves the race ahead. <laughs> so say your thing. And yet that's such a burden when you realize how important it is. It can drive you crazy if you don't. Yeah, I would say for you, don't live in the doom of the future. Don't let the shadow of being gone keep you from telling the stories that you can tell today. You're Mm -hmm. here to tell a story. This is a great time. This is a great forum in this podcast for something to outlive you and I that may or may not Mm -hmm. make a difference or inspire or influence someone else. I read a quote that you said, things change, but you don't have to. I read that and I thought, that's it. He's got his voice. He's going to express himself. And you can only express it till the clock runs out. Don't stop doing that. You know, I guess I never grew up in the world where you worry about the day you're going to retire. Like, retire from what? 
from telling jokes and doing card tricks or whatever I do. I like it. I want to do it in any form I can. If that happens to be this podcast developed out of an absence of having a place to express myself. I'm doing it from my home and you're doing it from your home. And we're in the world where this to me is a wet, a much better form of community than a big empty Zoom meeting where people are having a cocktail at five o'clock because they're lonely. Right. I think we're talking about things that matter to us and hopefully they matter to others. Yeah. I mean, a curiosity to me is a wellspring of creativity. And to be able right. to talk to a guy like you and just have a few moments about how you see the world how you pick up your instrument, what you do when you're in context of another artist, another band. Like it's everything Mm -hmm. to me to be able to hear about an artist process. Yeah. I mean, and in a perfect scenario, I can be that guy that reminds them that like, look, fear, worrying about the future is called anxiety. If you can realize that the only thing that matters is right now. In this moment, you are God, right? You in this moment. And I feel that from time to time, you know, I try to live that way. And yet I'll say, and it's just part of my artist nature that, uh, yeah, I'll probably always struggle with that, man, because I'm very, very fascinated with the passing of time. I go to certain places and I stand there when I was, when I lived in New York, I would take the train down to Coney Island and I would stand on the beach and look back at the city and think about the great parks that used to be there. And I would internally ache more than is probably healthy. And so I do that in my artwork. And as much as I know that like, hey, look, you have to focus on today. Don't worry about this. You can't control that. I often sign as a little thing in my artwork. I am a passing fad. You are a passing fad. You're Mm -hmm. here for a moment. And yet there's that universal consciousness that's in my head that is like, I can't stop thinking about the future. In a way, I'm several different people because sometimes I'm really strong in that aspect. And other times I'm very, very pensive and I'm very, very worried about. And in some ways, I guess both things create the art that you see. Do you know what a 20-sided object is? It's called an acosohedron. Wow. So I was thinking this morning that you're a Picasso hedron, right? That you're <laughs> right you're an eleven sided artist, dude. That's awesome. I thought you were going to say something like a, a Dungeons and Dragons no. dice piece or something. <laughs> no, no, but but it's interesting when you describe that scene in New York at the beach. Right. I think about every time that I go into New York City and I cross over. There's a hill where there's a graveyard, mm. and you see the graveyard rising on the hill straight into the skyscrapers of the city. You see the, the, the stones go right into the building. And I just, that whole thing, the buildings are being reduced to the graves and the graves are rising up into the city. And it's the most, every time I cross that bridge, I see that. And I think it's all, we just have the time between the building and the stone or the stone and the building. That's exactly That's the right. dash between the dates, you know? Yeah. We don't think about that type of thing enough. That's the danger from being a professional artist. You start to think from release to release mm-hmm. and you're not really thinking about the process. You're just thinking release to release. And, you know, it's some, sometimes playing the whole game. And I mean, I know you are obviously, you know, uh, the game that you have to play and you got to go 
you know, you got to deal with all the people in the suits and the ties and you got to deal with the people who have the money and you got to go to them because you got to eat, you got to pay your bills. Right. And you got to do all of that. And sometimes I'm just like, you know what, if I could get by on like sacking groceries and I could just go somewhere and just yeah, every now and then I hear that voice and you sometimes wonder, is that voice, is that your true voice speaking to you or is that some, uh, insane voice mm. floating around your head. So yeah, it's weird. Well, I think the real art is finding the balance between meaning enough of somehow comfort that you can say no to things that are discomfort. Right. You should be able to have the integrity to choose not to work for things that are overly compromising and so forth. And just finding also what is enough to satisfy you so that you aren't in the want place. The want place is what makes you compromise and to take something to say, oh, this will get me out of debt or this will get me out of this spot. So if you're a person that has uh, a gambling addiction or some other obstacle that increases your need to somewhat prostitute your art, you're stuck. But the closer you get to the purest part of just needing the the soup and the, I don't remember what I saw on your Instagram. There was something where you had a picture of you holding a pickle. It's like, this is a perfect pickle, like whatever, you know, there was some (laughs) simple piece of food where I go, he still knows what's important. It's just that, that pickle, whatever that was, I was like, that's the kind of guy I can hang out with. Right. That makes your day at that moment. And you, by the way, have made my day. I'm just so grateful for you. I I have so many uh, additional questions to talk to you about, and I hope that we can continue this in life. I will share with you. I'll send you a couple of amazing books about screenwriting that are simple and that might just help spur some of your stuff and put it in some format, because I would love to see you take what you do as a visual artist and what you do as a writer and as a poet. And I'd like you to see that in a story form that's dramatized in a way where the emotions come out in the interplay of the characters, as opposed to being on flat stock for lack of a better word. Right on, man. I really appreciate that. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've, I've got so many questions about what you do and the things you've created. And I mean, you've created some pretty uh, impressive things yourself, man. And and also you've got some interesting friends that I want to I'll, inter- I'll introduce you. About. I believe the pie is plenty big enough for all of us. All right, let me let me just say, man. You're friends with Yoda, so like I don't. I, <laughs> no wonder you got all this, all these, uh, all these good uh, suggestions and stuff. Well, let me tell you, I learn from every one of them. Like I'm not the expert on anything. I just I right. try to stay open. I feel like we're on a life learning process all the time. Right. Everything informs something else. We used to say this about Seinfeld was such a great observational comic that when somebody would cross the street for a slice of pizza with him, they'd come back with indigestion and he'd have 10 minutes worth of material. So (laughs) he just had a different way of watching the moment and recording it and always driven by craft, never took it for granted, you know, wrote every day and performs every week that, that it's allowed. And so, you know, that actually supersedes having a sitcom or anything else. It's just to have a craft that you can strap yourself to and enjoy for your lifetime. I feel for people who have a, an expression that has a time limit. No, I, I totally agree, man. That the, the tragedy of the, of the person who's, 
who's invested all of that skill and passion into something, you know, sports related, for instance, and then the knee goes, mm. you know, and it's just, what can I do? If you got your imagination, if you can think, what a privilege. Well, you, so. you make us all think, and I would encourage folks who don't know your work uh, to go to Jermaine Rogers Instagram or website and just go in there. And it's kind of a, a crazy theme park of color and texture and uh, just the, the ideas that you have. It's, it's storyland of, 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 of all of your life. I'm fascinated by all of it. Right on, man. You are so very kind and I appreciate it. Thank you. Good. Well, thank you for inspiring so many people and just keep up the great work. Right on. Continued success, pal. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under Wizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg with editing by soundsmith Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right, it's dot fun because dot com is not fun. Cheers. Call.